from about age seven. So fathers were responsible not just to what we might think of as lead or organize the home, but they were also responsible to educate their, their children. And that made sense in a first century context because girls, generally speaking, whether in the Jewish world or the Greco-Roman world, whatever your background was, girls weren't given much education. um, And the reason was because they weren't seen as, there didn't seem to be a point for it. Why would you educate, why would you spend all this time, energy, and resources educating a little girl because the point of her existence is to become a mother one day and to be able to organize and do household duties. And so what you do with young girls is you train them in household duties and prepare them for motherhood. And when they come of age, 12, 13, 14, 15, they're gonna get married and just become a mother. And so education was seen as a waste on girls um, for uh, pragmatic reasons, but also for philosophical reasons. That uh, women in general were just seen as a lower class of person than men, both within Jewish context and within a Roman context. And that's true in many parts of the world today where there are way more investments in the boys of the family than in the girls of the family. And that's not just logistical for logistical reasons, it's for philosophical reasons, but the nature of how we understand the value of, in in some of those cultures, the, the differing values between boys and girls. But notice, and again, this is something I would just, slide right past. Notice it's uh, fathers do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Um, One commentator, Leon Morris, is a pretty prominent evangelical commentator. Uh, there's, There's quite a few other commentators who reference him and say, you know, it's significant that Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says fathers, do not exasperate your children. He doesn't say boys. It's the, it is the word for children, both males and females, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. In a society where girls were valued much less, Paul is making sure that Christian parents understand that's not the way you're to view your children. In the kingdom of God, there is to be equal investment and equal empowerment into who they are. And so, um, right away, we see in one line a very strange, what would, have come to, what would have been received by them as being strange, very counterintuitive, a very provocative witness to the fact that in light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus has done, his life, death, and resurrection, and now the Spirit's filling the church, and now God's mission going out into the world, there are certain patterns and practices that you've done all along that are going to stay the same, but there are other things that have to be amended in light of the gospel. And certainly one here is how you view children, how you treat children, and how you view the differences between um, little boys and little girls as it relates to how you're going to invest in them. Do not exasperate your children. Mm, Well, yeah, let me me say a word, actually, before I go there about fathers. Um, So the point that I was trying to make with the context is it's very... clearly talking about fathers, because in that context, the only person who does the instruction is the fathers. But everything that follows now, I think it's pretty clear we can broaden that to parents, because both mothers and fathers enter marriage equally. They, you know, in some cases, like my own family, um, 
the mother has more educational attainment than the father does. And so in a culture where both people are able to instruct and to train their children, and we empower uh, both genders to do that within marriage, everything that follows is addressed to parents of households. Okay, so do not exasperate your children. The verb exasperate is perogizo, and it means to frustrate towards resentment. It can be translated to make angry. Some translations will just say, don't make your kids angry. It'll be some paraphrase of that. But that doesn't quite get at the root of it. The idea is that you are operating within your household towards your children in such a way that there is a brooding, deep resentment that is starting to take root in their heart. So this isn't just the anger that happens when you discipline your child and they get angry at you for that. This is a posture and an attitude that when repeatedly done is leading your child to not want to be around you, to be distant from you, to break connection, and justifiably because of the harshness of it or the unreasonableness of it. There's a really clear, sharp, precise demand placed on first century fathers, but in 21st century parents, that is very, very challenging. You do not parent in such a way that you are building resentment and anger in your child's heart. That is incompatible with kingdom parenting. And I think one key that's really interesting here is what that means is that Christian parenting isn't simply about instilling values in your kid, making sure they know the right values, making sure you've implanted the right Bible verses, that they're aware of the right principles, Christian parenting is just as much about fostering a deep connection and care and relationship with your kids. If it was just information transmission, then who cares if you exasperate your own children? Just cram them with the Bible knowledge they need. If they don't like it, whatever. But again, the, the premise of the command is that there's supposed to be a unity. There's supposed to be a harmony within the household. That might be ideal. We'll talk about just how ideal it gets in a few moments. But that's the ideal that we're striving towards. Not just transmission of values, but about deepening a connection with, between parent and child. And so I say that to say a Christian parent who has successfully implanted biblical truths into a child, but that's been done at the cost of the relationship, has failed as a Christian parent. And I would cross-reference that with Paul's words to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Where he says, if I can fathom all mysteries, if I'm just knocking it out of the park, if I'm selling a, you know, giving up everything I am to the poor, if I'm doing all these amazing outward expressions of, that you would expect to come from someone who's sold out to Jesus and fully alive to God, but I'm not doing it in love, it's worthless. I'm a clanging gong. There's, there's no point. That's kind of the same thing with parenting. Our goal in parenting isn't just to, as Christian parents, isn't just to drive biblical truth into the hearts of our children. The goal is to do that all in the context of love and care and support. What does it mean to exasperate your child or your teen? I did a lot of cross-reference between my own experience, other pastors, blogs, articles, commentaries, books, and I'm going to list a number of things that I think can be a, a legitimate cause for resentment 
and exasperation in a child or teenager's life. You don't have to, I don't want you to try and copy all these down. What I want you to do, if you're a teenager listening, is listen to whichever one or two or three, when you hear it, you're like, yeah, that's what it is. That's what it is about my family and my household that just drives me nuts. Now, you don't have to turn right away to your parent and say, yeah, it's this one right there. You don't do that. Be gracious. Let's have a gracious space here. And parents, what I want you to do is I want you to listen for maybe that attitude or behavior or posture that you know, even in your best moments, you know, I'm prone to this. You know, you're going to hear some of these things and be like, yeah, I, I don't struggle with that as a parent towards my child, but that... Yeah, that's, a, that's kind of a fault line in my own heart, and I need to be careful of that. And I need to acknowledge that. And I need to be, maybe in a different way moving forward, prayerfully bringing that before God. Because there's lots of temptations towards living in such a way that it breeds resentment t- from um, a child or a teen. But there are going to be s- certain temptations that just come much more easily to you based on personality, temperament, experience. So I'm just going to list a few, and you just be aware and just kind of you know, kind of catch two or three that come to mind. So some common roots of bitterness are hypocrisy in parents. So children or teens see a big gap between how parents posture and present themselves in public and how they operate within the household. Now, there's always going to be a gap, and this is something that children and teens don't always appreciate because your home is a place where you let down your guard a little bit. So there is always going to be a bit of a gap. We all behave better in public than we do in the household. But if the gap is too wide, especially for a child or a teen looking to their parents, then, then you are under the charge of potentially being hypocritical. Lack of affection or encouragement. Or conditional love or affection or acceptance. So the message that parents give is, I will love you if you perform, you achieve. That can be a cause of bitterness. Bitterness can also happen because there are just harsh, arbitrary, arbitrary rules. Or those rules simply get reinforced through, because I said so. There's no explanation given. Remember, children are to obey their parents, but obedience in Scripture means to be able to understand what you're being asked to do and then the reasons for it and then do it. You might not like it, but you understand the reasons. But again, it can be easy as a parent to lean on your authority and say, because I said so, because I'm in charge, because I'm the parent. You do that enough, that can breed resentment in your child's heart. Public shaming or diminishment, especially one child in front of the other, where we as parents publicly shame them or call them out in front of other family members. Unrealistic expectations and standards. So you're kind of, as a parent, you set up a system where there are rewards, but there's only rewards for perfection. There's not really rewards for progress. So if you're you know, achieving, if you're a high achiever, you'll get rewarded. But even if you're making gains, it's always about the gap that you have to make up, right? I got 90 on the, I got 90 on the test. What happened to the other 10%? But you're not looking at it in light of, wow, last year that would have been a 70. They've made huge strides. We've got to celebrate that. Failure to listen and understand. Obviously, legalism or religiosity, that you're harping on them about behavior without looking at the root issues of the heart, and that's the way you're living as well. Constant critique, too much micromanagement or control. 
I love what Zach Poltoff said in his blog. Uh, he's just someone that I found that uh, I think had some wise words as it relates to control. He says, when we try to control our kids, especially when it comes to um, their decisions, we teach them to long for the day when they're going to be free from our instruction. And in the worst cases, free from our faith and free from the Lord because what happens is they can begin to conflate. As a parent, you become symbolically your child's first experience of a godlike figure. And if you're domineering and controlling, no one wants to live under that. And so they want to get out from under that as soon as possible. And they certainly want to get out from under a faith if they've conflated the heart of God with what they've seen from their parents, which is domination and control. There are maybe less obvious roots of bitterness in a child or teen's heart. And one of those could be when we parent through just a whatever, it's all good, find your own way style of permissive parenting, right? When parents fail to discipline, when, when our children and teens subtly pick up, maybe not initially because they kind of like that freedom, but then they pick up over time, am I being given freedom because my parents love me and believe in me? Or am I being given freedom because it's just easier for them and they don't really care? They can't be bothered. They have better things to do. It's just too much work to actually parent. So they'll baptize being lazy with, hey, you go your own way. It's totally cool. Most children, most teens can't handle that kind of freedom without beginning to feel insecure and beginning to suspect that they're actually unloved. And I say this to my kids all the time. I, don't, I, I want you to always know I was fighting for your best. I'm going to make mistakes, but I want you to know that I'm fighting for your best. I never want them to think of me the way I thought of my father, which was, meh, look, whatever, it's all good. When you love someone, you are motivated to help them become who they are meant to be in God. Uh, here's a big one that I have had to learn over time, and I've, I think I've gotten better at it, but it wasn't intuitive when I started parenting. If you as a parent, as a Christian parent, fail to take responsibility and apologize for your own sins and failures, that can lead to a lot of resentment in your kid. Um, we try and be transparent with our kids. We try and be honest about our failings. And when we make mistakes, we try and own up to them. And that's important, right? Like scriptures, like when James talks about confess your sins to one another so that you might be healed, that's it. That applies to parenting too. You're going to make mistakes as a parent. And exasperation is hard to take, it's hard for exasperation to take root if you are coming with a posture of humility towards your kids and saying, maybe that was the right thing to say, maybe that was even the right thing to do, but the way I did it was wrong. I was too tired, I was stressed, I was too angry, whatever it was, or Maybe I've come down too harsh and we're going to ease up on the consequence a little bit or whatever it is. But when you make a mistake, you have to own that and apologize to your children. That's important for them to see. And overall, I would say expecting your children to live into a vision for discipleship that you are not living into yourself. That's a huge cause for resentment, right? Jesus for thee, but not for me. I want you to be fully invested in all this stuff. You know, I want you to go to youth group every week and you to be making good decisions and pushing all that, but like, I'm gonna have a very casual relationship with my in my relationship with God and my discipleship journey. 
we have to be leading in such a way that we're looking back towards our kids and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Not sitting on the porch and saying, hey, go, go follow Jesus. Go. Get out of here. That's going to lead to resentment and exasperation. And so the degree to which we as Christian parents allow these attitudes and actions to take root in our parenting, you're going to increase the likelihood that your children will adopt an angry, resentful posture towards you, maybe even towards God as a result. Now, I do want to make one point of clarification here, and this is important. There's kind of a side A, side B here. Just because your child or teen is exasperated doesn't mean that you've driven them to exasperation or that that exasperation is justified, right? There are going to be situations where your kid is expressing resentment and deep anger, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's justified or that you've done anything wrong as a parent. There's many situations that I've been involved in where you can approach things the right way and show a lot of patience and grace and thoughtfulness but it's really pretty clear that the teen or the child has simply made it up in their mind to be resentful towards the parent just because. And this text isn't speaking to that situation. It's not speaking to a situation where there's no justifiable um, root for the resentment. What this text is trying to emphasize is what Paul emphasizes in Romans 12, 18, which is, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you as a parent, live at peace with everyone. You are not to go out of your way to make it more difficult for your children to be a part of your household. Now, that being said, whenever our children and teens do display a consistent theme of resentment, deep anger, we have to be attentive to that. Maybe it's not our fault, but maybe it is. Maybe we have a blind spot that we need to seek to understand and to say, I'm really picking up a negative vibe here. I don't think it's justified the way you're talking to me, treating me or us, but I'm willing to hit the pause button and allow you to tell me why you think that's justified. We wanna understand the situation Um, But we don't want to be dismissive because sometimes what happens is there's a part of their life that is spiraling out of control and parents are just a safer space to inflict the wounds and the resentment. So even if there is something coming at us that isn't justified, our response shouldn't be to dismiss it and to be like, you have no right to talk to me that way. I've done anything wrong. It's to say, okay, maybe the problem isn't at the level of parent and child, it's child and schoolmate or child and someone else, but I need to be the adult and I need to be the parent and see past that, see past their hurtful words that are directed at me and dig deeper and to address things. Because we tend not to move into places of bitterness or resentment unless in a significant way we feel unloved, we feel uncared for, we feel unsupported, we feel unappreciated, we feel unengaged. And so whenever resentment rears its head in your family, you do need to have self-analysis and a willingness to say, okay, God, have I sinned here? Am I in the wrong as a parent? But you also need to be willing to move into deeper conversations and get past the presenting issue of your child or teen yelling in your face. And I, you know, I, I don't want to minimize how challenging that is to do. 
But that is our calling, is to try and not simply stay at that superficial level of anger and resentment, but to try and find a space and to re-engage in a way that allows you to really understand what's at the root here. So fathers, do not exasperate your children, but instead bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up is a really interesting word. It's ektrefo, and it actually means to feed or to nourish. So it's actually maternal language, but think about that in the context of the first century. It's fathers, nourish your children. It's very, you know, it's nurturing language, very countercultural where it was certainly presumed that a big part of how you raise kids is beating them. I mean, there's, you know, nobody, you know, that statement is not controversial in the first century context. You know, and I'm not even talking about corporal punishment. I'm talking about beating your kids. That was par for the course in the first century for most homes. Not seen as obviously an ideal, but absolutely one of the tools that parents have at their disposal. And all of a sudden, to Christian parents and in Christian households, the Holy Spirit through Paul says, fathers, people who have the most power and who are gonna face no legal or social recourse for beating their kids, nurture, feed your children. It's farming language, it's agricultural language, right? The farmer doesn't sow the seed and then start pounding the ground and saying, you better give me a harvest, right? Farmer's patient. Farmer knows how to work with the land. There's hard work to be done, but a lot of patient nurturing. And that's the picture that we're seeing here. Bring up your children, nourish them in the training and instruction of the Lord. Training is padia, which means discipline or instruction. It's, it's a pretty good translation of training in the way that you would train an athlete or learn an instrument, which comes with rewards and punishments and instruction, nuithia, which is teachings or warning. So the training is the teaching them how to do things, skill development, and then the nuithia is instruction, which is the verbal, do this, don't do these things. This is the warning, if you do this, this is, what's, this is the consequence, if you do these things, here's the positive consequence. So it's nurturing them through both words and actions. And again, as some parents, we think that all we need to do is model good behavior to them. And other parents just think all that needs to happen is we need to tell them the right things. But scripture is saying, no, you've got to marry those two together. That's how you nurture a child or a teenager. Show them and tell them. And that, that's a command. Do that. Neither of those are optional. You've got to do both. And then it says, do all these things. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Again, that's really important. It's easy to miss. Your job as a Christian parent, your highest aspiration should not be to raise good citizens. Your highest aspiration should not be that your kids are just generally good and that you're just pointing them to generically good values. You are to nurture them in uh, word and deed and example and instruction in the ways of the Lord. You are to point them towards Jesus, model Jesus, and to teach them how to follow Jesus as it relates to all the different dimensions of their life. The point of Christian parenting is to nurture children to become men and women who are fully alive to Christ and his purposes for them. 
Okay, so here are two reflections on the text that I think are important takeaways. For me, first of all, this is a really challenging message for me to think through and to ponder and to research and to read about. So these are reflections on the text that are really kind of a boomerang and coming back to hit me, and I hope that one or both of them will be challenging for you too. So the first is this. Nurturing your children in the training and instruction of the Lord is the primary responsibility of who? Say it, sorry? Parents. Parents. Not the Christian school, not youth group, not Sunday school. Those are all gifts, they're supplementary. And it's easy if, because of the choices that we've made, my children go to Sunday school, they attend the Christian school, they're involved in youth group or they have other things, it's easy to then kind of shift our own parental leadership into kind of neutral or cruise control because we've kind of outsourced discipleship of our children. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll pray with them at night and like a few different things, but generally speaking, the urgency to, do, to nurture them ourselves, it's easy to abdicate that when there are these other supports in place, but those are supplementary. They're awesome, but scripture is teaching us to see them as supplementary. We as parents are called to nurture our children in the teaching and instruction of the Lord. Someone said this, the implications of this insistence on the parental upbringing of children are many. One is that Christian parents should jealously guard their responsibility, delegating some of it indeed to both church and school, but never entirely surrendering it. It is their own God-given task. Nobody can adequately or completely replace them. Part of the burden that you bear as a parent is God has burdened you with the gift and the responsibility to be the main discipler of your child or teenager. And I understand the kind of burden that that is and the challenge that that presents. And I know that for a lot of parents, probably myself included, it's not the desire or the motivation that's lacking. It's, um, it's intentionality and consistency. Training and instruction are two elements that are so easy to neglect in a culture where you're just busy all the time between stuff that has to happen at home and work responsibilities and then sports and all the stuff going in different directions. Where do you carve out intentional time consistently? And I don't know if there's a quick, you know, silver bullet answer to that question. And I certainly wouldn't want to present as if there is one, but I think one question that I definitely want to make, um, I want to keep coming back to uh, with Heather as it relates to our family in light of this message is at least this. What does our family need to say no to in order to carve out quality time for training and instruction? It doesn't have to be quantity time, but we do need to carve out quality time. And the temptation at our stage of life is just there's so much responsibility there's, feels like there's very little margin. But that means that we're not gonna probably increase the margin by trying to add hours to the day. We've gotta say, what are some things that are good but that are actually encroaching on things that are a greater priority? What do we need to say no to? And if you want help with that, I have a few resources that uh, I just discovered this week and that I'm, I'll mention one in a few moments. Uh, but reach out to me talk to me. Uh, I always try and help 
uh, families and parents, but I don't like to do it in a shotgun approach because every family is different and all the particular needs are different. So feel free to contact me this week and say, I want to do this, I want to grow in this, but I don't really know where to get started. And then we can have some conversations and, and I'd be happy to sit down with you and help. And secondly, and it fo- follows from the first, is that a casual, non-directive parenting posture might be totally well-intended, but it's not a biblical posture. John, John Stott writes, one popular contemporary fashion in parenting is to urge parents to be totally non-directive and to leave their children to find their own way. But Paul is of a different mind. Certainly some parents are way too directive, too domineering, and thereby they inhibit their children from learning to make their own decisions and to grow into maturity. We have to distinguish between true and false education. False education is indoctrination in which parents and teachers impose their mind and impose their will on the child. But true education, on the other hand, is stimulation in which parents and teachers act as a catalyst and they encourage the child to make their own responses. This they cannot do if they leave their child to flounder. They have to teach Christian values of truth and goodness and to defend them and to recommend their acceptance to their children. But at the same time, abstain from any undue pressure or coercion. And man, that is more art than science because what coercion looks and feels like depending on your temperament as a parent, their temperament as a kid. That's why, you, you know, one of the prayers I started praying a long time ago, almost every uh, day was God give me wisdom with my kids just give me wisdom just pour your wisdom into me I need wisdom every day and then I need different wisdom because we're into new stages of life and new realities new challenges if you want to know how to do that how to be begin going on that journey of how do I guide my child without coercing my child and being a, a guiding presence without being a domineering presence uh, one resource that I've really found helpful is uh, parenting through love and logic I haven't read the teen version, Parenting Your Teens with Love and Logic, but I've read the, um, the one for younger children, younger families, and it's been really helpful in terms of giving me a template of how do we balance this sense of guidance plus giving responsibility, allowing them f- uh, freedoms to experience consequences, but not abandoning them to uh, self-destructive uh, momentum in their life. So that would be one that I would recommend to anybody who's in the childhood or teenage parenting years. Okay, so in summary, verse four. Fathers, parents, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That is what Christian parents owe their children. That's what they owe their children. And notice that the entire passage presumes fathers and mothers have yielded their lives to Jesus. That they are parents who are themselves growing in the training and instruction of the Lord. So don't miss, I think, what's a really critical question that kind of undergirds this whole passage and all of these instructions to parents, which is, are you actually a Christian parent? Have you, as a parent, yielded your life to Christ? Has Jesus changed your heart so that you don't just want good moral values values for your children, but you actually desire that they discover who they are in Jesus and that they develop a powerful sense of identity in Christ and have a compelling vision for who they are as part of God's kingdom agenda into the world and that they want to go on the adventure of learning what it means to love God and love their neighbor wholeheartedly and creatively 
through, their, through a full imagination and a big heart and a dedicated will. But to nurture someone in the training and instruction of the Lord, you have to be in the Lord yourself. You can't raise children and teens into their fullness in Christ without being in Christ yourself. So I know I'm speaking to two general swaths of parents here today. One is parents who want good for their kids but who are not Christians. You are not saved. And I would say this is a great opportunity to become a Christian and to start learning with your child what it means to follow Jesus together. And maybe you are saved, you are a Christian, you have yielded your life to Christ, but maybe you've abdicated responsibility to someone else. You're not leading, you're not nurturing your children, you're not giving much attention to training and instruction, you're just kind of hoping it'll happen. You become apathetic, you become complacent. Maybe you've tried and it wasn't fruitful, right? You were a farmer, you planted seeds, you watered, there was no harvest, and you just you stopped farming. You're like, I'm out. And I'm calling you to repent of that this morning. You gotta, you gotta turn away from that. Turn away from the hardness in your own heart. Turn away from your apathy. Turn away from your own complacency. And to commit to saying, I'm gonna take another step. I'm not gonna go from zero to 100 overnight, but this week I'm gonna take one step in terms of putting myself in a better position, increase my capacity, grow in my ability to nurture my child or my teenager in the instruction of the Lord. Can we commit to that this morning? No matter where we are, we seriously consider what it would look like to take that next step, to make a decision to become a Christian so that you can lead your children in both example and words, or to go to our kids and to say, I'm really sorry, this is where I think I failed you as a Christian parent, and this is where I struggle and I want your prayer and help for that and moving forward, I want to try and do this together. Would you agree to doing that with me? That's what repentance would look like, look like this morning and I would encourage us all to think carefully and deeply about what that looks like for each of our families. Let's pray. God, if there is a sense of conviction here, and a sense of the weight and the burden and the responsibility, but also an inspiration and a call towards something important and meaningful, I don't want it to just sit in the stomach this morning as like, oh yeah, I really needed to hear that. That was really good. And then we move into the afternoon and the evening and the week and the month and the years go by and it just kind of sat there and it dissolved. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just put a a splinter in our mind, just interfere with our ability to just move forward unconsciously and instead to take some time this afternoon and to say, as a parent, how do I need to respond to this message? One way, just one way, God. Bring one way to mind that you are particularly and precisely calling each of us as mothers and fathers and help us to be faithful in response to that. And if that demands great humility on our part to go to our kids or teens and apologize, then give us the grace to do that, God, and give them the grace to receive that with graciousness and care. But God, help us to lead and in so doing, show a, one of the most powerful examples we can of what it means to follow in the ways of the Lord, which is when the Spirit convicts, we respond with humility and obedience. And then we can 
with a new integrity turn to our kids and to say, now let's follow Jesus together, helping each other. And I pray and ask this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.